Today is our 28th birthday. Isn't that crazy? 28 years ago, uh, two congregations merged to become Hillside, and uh, it's been quite a ride. Um, Angel and I have been there for all of it. Some of you have been here for all of it. I know, I know you were around at the beginnings, and uh, we are going to celebrate today with an AGM, because we thought that would be a great way to celebrate. Actually, I do hope you'll join us on the April 22nd weekend. On Saturday, we've invited uh, local dignitaries. We're, we're going to have a, a kind of a formal program at, at 3 in the afternoon. Um, our mayor is coming. Our local MLA is coming. Uh, it's going to be really, really special. And uh, we're going to kind of dedicate this property again, rededicate it for God's work on the Sunday morning. So Saturday, Sunday combo. Love to have you come on the Saturday for some fun and barbecue and food and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be great. And uh, Holy Week, as Angel mentioned, is upon us as we reflect on Jesus' journey to the cross. And I hope you'll join us on both Friday and Sunday. I think Easter Sunday, the news of the resurrection is so much better after we've reflected on Good Friday and the death of Christ. Um, if you'd like to, to dig in a little bit uh, this week, you can. We have a reflection online or scripture reading uh, suggestions online you can, you can grab. Or my common suggestion these days is Lectio 365. Uh, this week, they offer uh, morning and night devotional times, and Tyler Stanton, uh, a pastor and author we know, is uh, going to be leading the devotions this week. It's going to be really good. So Lectio 365, it's an app. Just download it on your phone, and uh, if you forget, forget it and you, you, know, you want a reminder after the service, please reach out to us. We'd be happy to let you know. I am really looking forward to this week. You know, one of the reasons why is uh, if habit continues, this weekend, uh, our family are going to be watching Lord of the Rings. You know this, right? <laughs> Every uh, Easter weekend, it's become our habit over the last 10 years or so to watch the entire extended version of Lord of the Rings. I, I love it because it's such an epic story, and Easter weekend is such an epic weekend. The, the Easter message is the greatest of all stories. Now, I'm not nearly as fond of the film version of The Hobbit, but I love the opening scenes of that film. I wish I could show it to you now. Bilbo Baggins is this little person, Hobbit, who lives in a Hobbit house, a deluxe and very comfortable hole in the ground. And, and his life gets massively interrupted when Gandalf, the great wizard, visits him and invites him on an adventure. And, and Bilbo is adamant right from the start. No adventures here, please. But Gandalf can't be dissuaded, and so the next day, a swarm of dwarves arrive at his home. Um, Bilbo finds himself entertaining this large company of dwarves, and with Gandalf, they invite him on a mission to reclaim their homeland and to defeat the evil dragon Smog. That's a quick story or overview of The Hobbit. And they ask Bilbo to take this very special place on their team. They say, though, that they will not be responsible for any suffering incurred on the journey, <laughs> such as lacerations, eviscerations, incineration. We're talking dragons, remember? Why would Bilbo ever go? Well, in our passage today, Jesus and his disciples are in this pivotal moment where Jesus lays out with his friends kind of the contract details of what it means to follow him. This is the basics of what it means to, to get on his life, the guts of discipleship. 
And we, like the disciples, might be tempted to respond like Bilbo first did when we hear what Jesus says. If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have loner Bibles at the back, or you probably have one on your phone. Thank you, darling. Matthew chapter 16, uh, and we're going to be beginning at verse 21. Why don't we stand together for the reading of God's word? From that time on, Jesus began, began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus returned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of God coming in his kingdom. God, may your word be applied to our lives today. Give us courage to hear and respond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You have a seat. Again, for those of you wondering why we're bouncing around in Matthew, it's because we had a snow day back in the beginning of March that bumped our whole schedule. And uh, I thought, surely, it'll be clear today, but I saw snow on the ground today. It, it's, it seems to me that we're destined to follow this text on a snowy day. I don't know why. This text, as you might remember, follows right after the scene at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus asks his followers a very important question, who do you say that I am? And this is the central question of actually all of the Gospels, not just Matthew. They each ask of Jesus this question, Jesus who are you? They saw him do all these wild and kind of crazy things, and they have great questions as to who he might be. And Peter answers in this moment, after, after he's followed Jesus for a while, he answers with great faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God. Now, now Peter uses a word that literally means anointed one. Kings were traditionally anointed with oil at their coronation. And so the word Christ had come to mean the anointed one, the king to end all kings, the, the king who would put everything right. And Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the king. And, and Jesus accepts the title, but then turns around and begins to say things they find shocking and actually appalling. Yes, I'm the king, he says, but I'm not like the king, anything like the king you were expecting. As in verse 21, it says again, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And then Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. 
And so Jesus began to teach that he must suffer many things and be killed. It's actually an astonishing pronouncement. <laughs> when, when Jesus finally speaks of his status as Messiah and King, it's an entirely upside-down understanding of what it would have meant to those first disciples. As Simon alluded to earlier, rather than, than coming majestically and powerfully to expel the Romans and cleanse the temple, he totally breaks the Messiah stereotypes by, by saying that the meaning of his life and mission is not about victory and success, but about rejection and suffering and death. No one ever saw this coming. <laughs> that the Son of Man should suffer made no sense at all. That's why the minute Jesus says this, Peter begins to rebuke him. And rebuke is actually a strong word here. It's used elsewhere for what Jesus does to demons. This means Peter is condemning Jesus in the strongest possible language. Why is Peter so thrown off by this? And he's pouncing on Jesus the moment after he's just called him the, the Messiah. It comes down to expectations, right? <laughs> expectations tend to do a number on us in most of life. But think of Peter. From his earliest days growing up, he would have been told when the Messiah comes, he's going to defeat evil and injustice by ascending to the throne. But here Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, the King, but I have come to suffer and die. I, I, I'm not here to take power, but to lose it. I'm, I'm here not to rule, but to serve. That's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. And we, we know the end of the story. We know Easter. <laughs> we know Jesus' death was not a failure. By submitting to death as the penalty for sin, Jesus broke its hold on him and on us. Hallelujah. Timothy, Timothy Keller, uh, pastor and author, describes it this way. He says, when Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, he won through losing. He achieved our forgiveness on the cross by turning the values of the world on their head. He did not fight fire with fire. He did not come and raise an army in order to put down the latest corrupt regime. He didn't take power. He gave it up and yet triumphed. And then listen to this. On the cross, then, the world's misuse and glorification of power was exposed for what it is and defeated. Jesus says, I'm the king, but I'm not any kind of king like you've ever imagined. I'm a king who must die. But he doesn't stop there. Matthew writes, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Right there, that line, that's the guts of what it means to be a Christian. Right there. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. As the Mandalorian would say, this is the way. This is the way. He goes on, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul. Jesus had radically said he would suffer and die. Now he says, take up your cross. You know, today when we think of the symbol of the cross, I think we tend to think of um, jewelry that we wear or, or 
you know, sayings, uh, uh, you know, bearing a figure of speech, bearing a cross, as in putting up with an inconvenience or a hardship. How vastly different was the image of the cross in the first century? To that culture, the, the cross was, according to James Edward, an image of extreme repugnance. The cross was an instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization, and shame. The cross symbolized hated Roman oppression. It was the most visible and omnipresent aspect of Rome's terror apparatus, designed to especially punish criminals and quash rebellions. In 71 BC, the Romans defeated the slave rebel, rebel Spartacus. You've probably seen a movie about him. They crucified him and 6,000 of his followers on the Appian Way, all the way from Rome to Capua. As Bishop Mool said about picking up a cross, people carrying crosses were going to execution. And Jesus is saying, since I am a king on a cross, if you want to follow me, you must go to a cross. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The, the Cost of Discipleship, when Jesus calls a person, he calls them to come and die. Jesus radically says, if you're going to follow me, there's going to be a death in it. What does it mean to take up our cross? What does the image mean for our lives? Well, the cross signifies a total claim on a disciple's allegiance to Jesus. He's talking about giving up your selfish ambition, giving up any other agenda for your life, death to your own ambition. If, if you want to follow Jesus, there's really one standard step. It's kill all other options. Now, now it's interesting. On, on one level, it is similar to what happens when somebody says they've fallen in love, right? And this idea of falling in love is a phrase we probably misuse a lot, but we all get the idea. When, uh, when people talk about falling in love, they, they move from the option stage to the stage where all other options are denied, it's just natural. When, when, I, when, I said, when somebody said, I've fallen in love with so-and-so, there's this glazing over of the eyes, this perma smile on their face. They lose some of their sensibilities, I think, just about, right? I'm in love. But when they say that, they don't ever in the next breath say, I'm in love with someone else. They don't do that, right? When you're in that place where you make your choice, you've fallen in love, you, you move past the she's kind of cute stage to the she's the one stage. I, I don't just love Michelle, I'm in love with Michelle. And, and, and once you're there, you don't talk about Julie or Cindy or anyone else. You, you're entirely about Michelle. Jesus is calling us or inviting us to the equivalent of falling in love to the point where Every other option gets killed. Every other option gets let go. It disappears. There's no Jesus and this. You're not going to be able to successfully add Jesus to your life as one more girlfriend or boyfriend. No more options. I've, I've killed them. They're gone. I've put them to death. And so Christians take communion to remember that the cross is actually the only way to Christ. And Christians are baptized symbolically, actually thrust into the grave and brought back up alive 
and clean to remember that dying is the only way to follow Christ. Sometimes uh, denying ourselves and taking our cross leads to these epic inner battles. Like, can you picture like Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord? But most of the time, I, I think taking up our cross means dying to our rights. You know, dying or dying to our self of our sense of importance, dying to our treasures, or or bearing a hard thing with Jesus-like virtue and trust. But Bonhoeffer was right. When Christ calls a person, he calls them to die. A.W. Tozer, uh, I think, put this so well. He said, to be crucified means, first, the one on the cross is facing only one direction. Second, they're not going back. Third, they have no further plans of their own. You know, when I baptized a friend a few years ago, I, I threatened to hold him under the water just a little bit longer. You know, told him, I, I want you to remember that you've died. You've died. I did not hold him in for much longer than normal, but a little bit longer. Just a. Don't make the baptizer mad is all I'm saying. Just don't ever do that. Don't ever be a bad thing. If we haven't got a handle on what this looks like, Jesus clarifies it by, by telling us that picking up a cross involves denying yourself. Now, Jesus isn't talking about self-denial the way people talk about giving up chocolate or, or giving up a night of fun so they can study for an exam. The word deny is used only in two contexts in the gospel. This is one of them, and the other is when Peter denied Jesus on the night Jesus was going to the cross. That's a denial. That's denying someone else. But how do you deny yourself? It's as though I look in the mirror and I say, I'm not with him. He's not who I follow. He's not who I believe in. He's no longer what I stand for. Denying myself is saying to the person in the mirror, I know you want to be treated well, but we're going to put on an apron and serve. I know you think we should go first, but we're going to go last. I, I know you think that I should give that person who offended me or hurt me a piece of my mind, but instead I'm going to be gracious and I'll forgive. This is the point in the story where with Peter and with Bilbo, we're tempted to say, no way, uh-huh, no adventures, please. I ain't doing that. I'm not going there. Dying to myself, denying myself, give up my comfort, my safety, my security, my agenda, the life I'm carefully crafting. Let's be honest, it's so much easier to say or to pray, my will be done than your will be done. This cross life seems so costly. But listen to what Jesus goes on to say in verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What does it mean? What, what does it mean to lose our life for the gospel in order to save it? Well, if we think the cost of following Jesus is too high, Jesus says, consider the alternative. Jesus says, the, the, the Greek word behind life and soul in those verses is the same word. It could also be translated self. 
your life, your soul, your yourself is actually on the line. But none of those English words really kind of capture Jesus' meaning. To give us a sense of what Jesus meant, Eugene Peterson in the message put it this way. What good would it be to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What does he mean by that? Again, Tim Keller really helped me with this, how, how in every culture, the culture points to certain things and says, if you gain those, if you achieve that, if you get that, then you know that you are something. You'll know that you're valuable, you're significant. In, in our culture, it can be by, by gaining a fulfilling career that brings you reputation and money and status. Our, our culture really does say that identity is performance-based. How you do is who you are. If you gain that, you've arrived. Jesus says, quite bluntly, that that's just never going to work. If you gain the whole world, it won't be big enough or bright enough to cover up our, our sense of insignificance. No matter how many of those things that you gain, it's never enough to make you sure of who you are. Haven't we seen this again and again and again in our celebrity culture in our world? I mean, think about Jennifer Lopez, top worldwide star in music and movies, but bouncing from husband to husband to husband. What's that say about her? It's that you can gain the whole world and still feel this incredible vacuum at the core of your soul that you try to fill. And of course, if you're trying to build your identity on somebody loves me, or if you're building your identity on I've got a, a good career, and anything goes wrong with that relationship or goes wrong with that job, you actually fall apart. You feel like you don't have a self. Jesus counterintuitively says you have to lose yourself to gain yourself. He said that, by the way, way before Eminem put those words into a song. But losing yourself. What, like, what does that mean, losing myself? Like, do I lose who I am? Actually, no. I don't think anybody puts this better than C.S. Lewis in the last two pages of his book, Mere Christianity, where he talks about this paradox. Listen to this. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It's, it's no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In, in fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. What Lewis is saying is that when we yield ourselves to Christ, to Jesus, only then will our truest self, our deepest sense of who we are emerge. 
in losing your life, you find your life. But for Peter, when Peter hears Jesus is going to Jerusalem, which will entail suffering, suffering, almost certainly not just for Jesus, but also for him, he's repulsed. Why? Well, because he had his agenda. And his agenda led from strength to strength and didn't include suffering. When he sees that Jesus is not working from that agenda, he rebukes him. I wonder how many of you have gone through a troubling time or a difficult time. And actually what you're doing in that season might be sharing in the sufferings of Christ. But in that moment, all of you wants to rebuke Jesus too. And say, Jesus, I don't want to have any part of this. I don't want that. And actually Jesus, just as strongly as Peter renounced Jesus, Jesus renounces Peter in that moment. <laughs> says you only have in, in your mind the things of, of man not the things of God you don't see the big picture you don't know what I can do through suffering you haven't seen the power of the cross yet here's here's the thing if if your agenda is the end what is the means sometimes quite frankly for Christians Jesus can be the means we end up using him but if Jesus is the king, you can't make him a means to your end. You can't come to a king negotiating. How do you come to a king? You come on bended knee saying, direct me, guide me, command me. I, I'm yours to direct. If you, you try to negotiate instead of you say, I'll obey you if, you aren't actually recognizing him as king. But don't forget this. Jesus is not just a king. He's a king on the cross. If we were only a king on a throne, you'd submit to him just because you have to. But he's a king who went to the cross for you. Therefore, you can actually submit your life to his out of love and trust. This means coming to him, not negotiating, but saying, Lord, whatever you ask me, I'll do. Wherever you send me, I'll go. When somebody has given themselves totally for you, how can you not give yourself totally to them? Taking up your cross means dying to, to self-determination, dying to controlling your own life, dying to using him for your own agenda. When wrapping up, Jesus goes on to say, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. By the way, I love how Jordan, a couple weeks ago, uh, reserved his take on this so that some future preacher could explain it. I am said future preacher, right here. <laughs> what did he mean by that? Some here won't taste death until they see Jesus coming in his kingdom, or as Mark says, or his kingdom coming in power. Some people have read this and, and believed it meant that that current generation wouldn't pass away before Jesus returned to earth. And yet the early church cherished this passage for generations beyond those first, first people, well beyond the death of Jesus' generation. They would know that Jesus meant something else. Some say that it's answered in the very next text uh, in Matthew, which we looked at with Jordan, where Jesus is transfigured on the mountaintop. I think that's a very good read, actually. 
There was this glimpse in that moment on the hillside where three of Jesus' disciples saw Jesus radiating the glorious brilliance of the Son of God. That's a solid interpretation, and that may be right. I like to think also that for those first disciples, they came to understand that though the kingdom of God was birthed in weakness on the cross, it wouldn't end that way. Because what would they go on to see? They would see the power of the resurrection. They'd see the church multiply and grow in love and service and influence in the world. They'd see and they'd participate in this community of the king, a new astounding life and fellowship. That's what denying ourselves and taking up our cross and and following Jesus gets us. We have now this foretaste and down payment of the unimaginable life that God has promised for those who follow Jesus. Some of you have uh, heard of Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a journalist, a TV personality in, in Britain. And during World War II, he was a soldier and a spy. He was an agnostic, a non-believer for most of his life. But remarkably, Malcolm Muggeridge became a Christian. Listen to his testimony. Two lines. He says, I can say that I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness or cared to live until I chose to die. For these two discoveries, I am beholden to Jesus. I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness. That's the upside down kingdom of Jesus. We're so bent on pursuing happiness, thinking that we know the secret to happiness, and we just don't. You see, for us, the kingdom of God actually begins on the other side. It begins with weakness, letting go, releasing the rights to our life. It all begins with admitting our need for a Savior. We we need someone to actually fulfill all the requirements of God and to pay for our sin. That's weakness. And Jesus started in weakness, first by becoming human, and second by going to a cross. And if we want him in our life, we have to start in weakness too. But while the kingdom starts there, it doesn't end there. Someday when Jesus returns and brings a renewed creation, love will totally triumph. Before we close, let's return to Bilbo for a moment. Bilbo says no to the adventure, to denying himself the comforts of home. And he wakes up during the night and Gandalf... And the dwarves have slipped off. They've started their adventure without him. And my favorite scene in the whole film, the whole series of The Hobbit, is Bilbo walking through his empty, comfortable home and considering his life. And then the very next moment, you see that he's grabbed his things and he's run down the road after them. He wants in on the adventure. An adventure that would utterly transform him. That's the image I had of us this week, of some of you, considering your life, tempted to hold on to comfort with all that you are, to hold on to yourself, thinking that by holding on to yourself, you'll gain yourself. But the image I had was no, you decided to go for it, willing to truly lay down your life for the sake of King Jesus and his kingdom. 
As martyr Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Why don't you bow your heads with me and uh, close your eyes. Before we pray, let me read the challenge of C.S. Lewis. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find with him, you will find him and with everything else, and with him, pardon me, everything else thrown in. Look for Jesus and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Jesus, uh, we hear your invitation again today, and there's a part of us uh, that when we hear that we're called also to follow you in picking up our cross and denying ourselves and living the Jesus way, uh, Father, there's parts of us that are offended by the idea, if we're honest. This is one of those ideas that looks good on paper, but the living of it, God, we find it so tough. Jesus, we pray that we might be willing to be humble before you. To set aside ourselves in order that we might find life in you. Jesus, lead us, we pray. Maybe there's the, those this morning here, you just know um, you've been living for number one. You, you've been number one in your life. And, and this morning, you, you uh, sense this is a moment where Jesus is inviting you to surrender, yield your heart, your life to him. Why don't you do that right now? Just maybe open your hands before him and say, Jesus, I'm yours. You're my king. I want you to lead my life. I want to give all that I am, all that I have. I, I want to lay down my agendas, my ambitions, my desires. I want you to lead me and command me and, and shape me and direct me. You've said, Jesus, remarkably, that if I do that, you will give me life, that death leads to life. And I pray, God, you might indeed do a, a resurrection work in us this morning. We surrender to you. As you call us, we want to respond. In Jesus' name we pray.